0: Thank you. Welcome to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. I'd just like to start off by saying a massive thank you to everyone who's tuned in so far. Uh, it's been absolutely amazing reconnecting with old friends, um, you know, interacting with new people on social media, and just receiving fantastic messages of support in general. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, everyone. So moving on from the icebreaker, this is the first official episode of the Tell Me Podcast. I'm really excited. On this episode, I have a conversation with Colin McLaughlin. Colin began his military career at the ripe old age of 15. Um, Yep, you heard that right. You don't have to check your uh, headphones or speakers. That was 1515, originally with the Royal Scots. um, He then applied to SF training or Special Forces training and was successful eventually becoming uh, an operator in the world-renowned 22nd Special Air Service Regiment or 22SAS where he was a part of various high-profile missions. Um, after the military, Colin has done just an, a myriad of things, uh, absolutely incredible, um, working as a security consultant, motivational speaker, uh, an author, a historian, uh, even as a video game character. You're, uh, you're, again, you heard that right, a video game character uh, in games such as Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption. Um, and on top of that, Colin also supports various charities Um, with the links in description of this podcast. Um, Anyways, thank you again so much for tuning in. And um, I hope you enjoy this. Hi, Colin. Uh, Thanks for being on this episode. This is actually the first episode. um, And I think I might have shot myself in the foot here by having someone of your sort of prestige on with your background uh, and your accomplishments um but you know uh it, m- it might just be downhill from here to be honest for this podcast but <laughs> um thanks again for being on the podcast mate
1: no at all it's a it's a pleasure and an honor to be the first person on there and what I'm sure will be uh one of many <laughs>
0: um too kind so Colin you and I um for the audience we, we met um during a close protection course that I um took uh with, that I was a student in. That was run by Horizon here in Scotland, uh, and you were one of the lead instructors on it. Um, And I thought, you know, the the things that I learned from you that I picked up along the way over the weeks um, were just, you know, fantastic sort of insights into the industry, but also into you as a person, your personality, uh, your outlook in terms of resilience and motivation. So I thought, you know, it'd be fantastic to have you on, and hopefully the audience can pick up. those sort of one percenters if you will and and you know apply them to their own lives so if you don't mind we'll start from the beginning and um could you just tell me you know your your first chapter of the Colin McLaughlin story
1: yeah I guess it's, it's probably uh, good starting uh, early doors and f- for me like a lot of guys that enter the military particularly the infantry I came from quite a broken home, so quite a troubled upbringing, um, a lot of violence and uh, abuse going on in the childhood, and I had the children's panel involved, um, PCC supervision orders and stuff, so I was quite close to going to home, and I had to get special permission at only 15 years old to join the army, I think you had to be 16, but my mum wrote me a letter to say that I would have to join the army, otherwise I was either going to go to home or I was going to be homeless, and so I joined the army at 15, and I never saw my parents again.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, so, you know, I, I think with a lot of, and and we'll go into this later on with the special forces side of things, but when you when I hear stories and read stories of people who sort of served at the highest levels, there's a lot of that sort of broken home, you know, rough background. Um, sort of characteristics do you think that the you know that that why do you think that is in terms of people serving at those levels having those sorts of backgrounds
1: I think it's a mixture of things I think one is that sometimes when you come through trauma broken home abuse you build these sort of layers of resilience that everything is compared to that. So when you think you're in a tough spot, actually, you've probably been in a tougher spot. So you're more, you've got a sort of armoury of things to get through it. And you don't have to be a child to experience that. You you know, you you don't have to have been in the army for that. You, You can go through all sorts of traumatic circumstances in your life, and those will sort of either degrade your your resilience or they'll improve it and you'll add layers so that when you put yourself through incidents like that again in the future you're more able to uh, protect yourself against them and that's why you see a lot of uh, kids from broken homes or troubled upbringings or they've had all sorts of trauma going on in their childhood flourish in the in the infantry because when the times are tough and you're cold, wet, hungry, tired, and you're in a shell scrape, actually you're okay because you're surrounded with people in the similar, you know, stuff going on and and you're able to deal with it. And that's what makes good soldiers. And uh, yeah, I I think it's no coincidence that you have a a large proportion of the infantry are made up of uh, kids that have come through, you know, troubled stuff, as well as having limited options so maybe if you'd have managed to get through school successfully, um, you, you might have had more options available to you. But certainly back when I was when I joined, and it's different now, choices were limited as a young fifteen-year-old boy, particularly with no qualifications. And going into the army was one of one of the things that uh, had offered itself to you. And from there, it's just a choice of you flourish or or you use it as a sort of springboard to to prepare yourself somewhere else
0: yeah no that makes perfect sense um uh, there was a book uh brought up by uh, mark donaldson he was a australian sasr um and a vc recipient as well um and it was titled crossroads and he comes again from that sort of rough background and he discusses that there's moments in your life where that you sort of come to a crossroads where you know you, you choose certain decisions and they might lead you down sort of a you know dark path and you choose other decisions and you can flourish like you're saying um what was the draw for you um you know at that point in your life at 15 that sort of crossroad moment what was the draw for the military um was there anything sort of that wanted that that caught your attention
1: yeah not not particularly for me i was never one that i'd always wanted to join the the army what happened was my mum at the time she said, you, you can be a doctor, a dentist, or a lawyer. And I didn't really, that, none of those three appealed to me. So I didn't really know what I wanted to be. And this was a problem, you know. Um, you know I had to have a clear vision of what I was supposed to be as a 15-year-old boy. And, you know, as you grow up, when you're 15, you're 25, you're 35, you're 45. As you go through life, you change. You're not the same person and you have different values and things that you're interested in and things that you realise you're not going to become. But here are the things I'm good at that I think I can make a career at. You know, I'd love to be a professional football player or a golfer or, you know, a movie star. But that's probably not going to happen. So what are the things I can do and make a career of and, uh a living out of and really those are those are the sort of things i went through for me i I went and set this tick test at the army careers office and i equaled the highest they ever had at bathgate um, careers office and they said you can join whatever you want and i didn't really know what there was out there so as a 15 year old boy i was looking at the photographs on the wall and there was this guy with a sort of blue um sort of sleeve his shirt on and he was hanging off a radar dish in hong kong all tanned and stuff and i said yeah i want to be i want to be that guy and he said well i still remember this now he said that's a telecommunications systems analyst operator and i was like oh yeah that sounds important and he's abseiling off a radar dish in hong kong what's not to like and he said um well it's a year's waiting list and then it's two years training And my mum said, nah, he's out of the house by the time he's 16. So two weeks later, I joined the infantry, and that was me on my
0: my road. (laughs) You could have been a whole other operator in Hong Kong living the dream, shirtless and tanned. yeah and and that was
1: it you know and um that, that's probably one of those crossroads i've had a few in my life but um no with no qualifications and uh no no waiting time allowed i was catapulted into the infantry um, for, a, for a shock at 15
0: <laughs> and um yeah okay so we're, we're sitting in the recruiter's office at 15 uh and then you're how long what's the wait period between that day and and starting at the inf- infantry uh, literally two weeks later. Two yeah. weeks
1: later, there was me covered in 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 cam cream and um, you know arms like spaghetti. Young fifteen-year-old kid just surrounded by people all the way aged up to sort of eighteen, nineteen, and I had to grow up quite quick because yeah. you know I, I I was a very shy young retiring boy, you know, not very uh, confident, not very outgoing, very, very slim, probably quite undernourished. And um, yeah, it's a long year. And I think even though I was 15 when when I went there and 16 when I left, I'd grown, sort of, I'd put five years on my life in terms of maturity and, you know, confidence and things I could do. And I would say that to anybody, you know, people say, would you encourage your son to join the army and it's not for everybody but for some people it can make or break them you know it can be the little thing that gives you that little bit of confidence to prepare yourself in a different direction in life or it can be the thing that makes you think nah the army's not for me i'm gonna have to do something else you know
0: yeah exactly and i suppose and we might get into this later as well but i suppose it depends on like what is going on around the world as well what cycle of operations the military you know is is under and and that sort of thing cuz you, you could have periods sort of you know pre 9/11 where it was more garrison military based operations and then you know post 9/11 with the speed of war everything adapts and changes um but we'll we'll get into that in a bit later so what was your first um infantry you know like where where were you based
1: so when I finished training, I was still that young. I was only um, 16 that I couldn't be posted out to my unit, which was the Royal Scots, because they were out in Germany. And I think you had to be 17 or 17 and a half before you could go out to Germany. So I did my Op Granby training, which was the first Gulf training um, with a unit called the Royal Highland Fusiliers, the RHF. And these are sort of quite well known, you know, sort of from Glasgow, Scottish infantry, hard as nails unit. And I go down there thinking I'm a soldier now, you know, I'm 16, I've done my training, I'm ready to be launched into war. And I was (laughs) not prepared for the RHF. I went down to Cambridge and when I got down there, there was a famous famous period in the RHF's history where they, they had a couple of guys that had got battered off some gypsies. And so the Royal Highland Fusiliers got their whole regiment together and they cleared the gypsy campsite, extended line, almost like area cleaning. They just went through and just battered the whole gypsy campsite. And I was sort of dragged along to it, like, you're part of this unit, son, let's go, let's get you bloodied up. (laughs) And uh, it was absolutely mental. And I thought, what have I let myself in for? Like that. This is not what I thought it was about. But I did my Granby training with RHF and uh, it was a few months later before I I was outposted to the Royal Scots. But even when I went to the Royal Scots, that was a sort of uh, one of those moments where I'd done my training. I'd sort of got bloodied with RHF. I'd done my training for going to the first Gulf. And when I went out to Germany, I was on a four-tonner, which is like a big high sort of truck. And I got into Germany... And these two guys took the, the top of the uh, four-tonner, and I could see their heads over the top of the four-tonner. I mean, the four-tunners, like the top of the 4 tonners, about six foot four, six foot five. And I could see both their heads over the top of it. And I was thinking, what did they feed these guys? <laughs> and it was uh two two guys, John Lothian and John Gaylor, and they were massive units. And they put this bottom down, and they were like, right off you get you creatures and I was like oh my god like and then off we went and then uh, it was it was training in, in Germany and of course for anybody who's been out in Germany in the services that that may, that turns you into a man as well when you're posted <laughs> out with out Germany so yeah I think I went from 15 to about 40 in the space of like two years after my training what, what years are these so this would have been 1989 uh joined uh and so I would have been out in Germany probably about 1991 or something like that just just when the first Gulf War was kicking off
0: yeah yeah I was um, three years old so (laughs) um so throughout all these experiences like would you say that you felt that you belonged in the military by then
1: uh yeah i i felt like i could make a go of it i was worried when i first went in um but by this stage i, I realized that i can make a go of it um and that i can i can be a good soldier you know and uh, that was the sort of start of it and then as the years ticked away and i went through courses and got promoted and all the rest of it I realised I could really make a career of the military and the, I, I quite enjoyed soldiering and I, there was things that I was good at that I could I could sort of find myself within the military, which I guess, I mean, the military is quite big and there's a lot of different areas, you know, with infantry and engineers and signallers and all the rest of it. And there's there's sort of a place for everybody um, for, for what you want to do and the things you're interested in.
0: Yeah, that was when I was um, in the police, that was sort of one of the draws for me was I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something that, you know, sort of helped my community or, or those around me. And it was that draw, one of the draws was, is, you know, the one career with multiple jobs sort of for everyone as well. Um, so I, I could certainly see that, that attraction for a lot of people who maybe aren't quite sure what they want to do. Um, okay, so you're in Germany with these two massive blokes hoisting you off the truck um with Ro- the Royal Scots um so how long were you at the Royal Scots for and what were sort of your your roles um in, in that period of time?
1: Yeah so I spent I think about nine years in the Royal Scots and uh, I did my sort of pre-gulf training I was rear party out in Germany and then we came back to Fort George up in Inverness in Scotland and we spent about four years there before we went down to Colchester and um I went, through, I went through cycles where I, I got sort of passed around different companies. So I think I was in just about every company in the Royal Scots. And um, I was doing all different courses, but I couldn't get on some of the promotional courses because the people there was people more senior in front of me, but they would go and then they would fail and then they would come back and they would go on. So I sort of did quite a bold sidestep and I went to the signals because the signals weren't sending anybody on like these Gucci promotional courses, junior Brecken, senior Brecken and stuff. Yeah. And so I would go, I went away with the signals and that's how I managed to go away on sort of juniors and seniors and stuff. And then I did my sort of signal seniors course. And then I got sort of posted across to the recce. And it was when I was in the recce platoon that you're sort of, uh, sort of, finer infantry art sort of came in and it was while I was in the close observation platoon in Northern Ireland that's where I sort of came across special forces we had a lead instructor who was ex-SES on the close observation platoon school and you know he, he was a great soldier and I, I sort of liked their style very relaxed but very professional and uh, they were sort of at the sharp end of the spear you know they were doing all the really important strategical work yeah and then in ireland i came across them so we might hide in a bush for two weeks like videoing something or doing what we thought was sneaky beaky stuff and then they would come in and they would do the real stuff you know <laughs> we we'd pull out and they would go in and do all the sort of smash and grab or wiping out targets and i thought i i, I quite I, i'd like to do that even though i didn't really know much about them or or what selection was about I just wanted to test myself at that level because other things I was testing myself at, I was finding I could cope with it, whether I was going away and doing GPMG courses or signals courses or recce courses or sniper courses. I I, I was able to deal with it. And so I thought, I wonder if I could give special forces a go. And for for guys that are ex-paras or ex-marines, they've got a good idea of what selection's about, what it entails, what you need to be. Yeah. We didn't have anybody in the SES at that time from the Royal Scots. Probably been about, I don't know, 20, 25 years previous we'd got anybody in. So I didn't really know much about it, but I knew I wanted to sort of have a go at it. And so I put my papers in for selection.
0: Yeah, nice. Uh, you know, these days there's sort of um, popular culture and, you know, books, movies, you know, and, and, and sort of anything special forces related I feel like uh, gets thrown to Hollywood. Um, I, I would imagine, you know, back back in those days, the, maybe the material to to sort of read up on the what they did, you know, how selection went and, and all that sort of stuff wasn't readily available. So you were saying that you had an instructor um, who who was an um, ex SAS operator. W- were there any other sort of avenues of inquiry that you went down, or was it just a I'm going to take the you know the plunge in the deep end and, and just do it sort of thing?
1: Yeah, like a lot of people that get sort of um, influenced by books and stuff, uh, Andy McNabb and Chris Ryan, um, their books hadn't long been out after the 91 Gulf. And so reading those stories and and, and stuff, those were sort of things that inspired me. Um, And I think like anything, we go through phases in our life where we see people and we get influenced by them by how they project themselves how they are how they are professionally and how they come across and it it sort of molds us a little bit and i I was a little bit like that you know we had this instructor and even though he was so relaxed he was so friendly when when we went and you know we might do drills he, he was ferocious and professional and when we did fitness he was always first but he was really humble with it it wasn't like I'm um, first because, you know, I work and train at this every day. He, he was just naturally naturally fit and naturally professional. And th- those are the sort of things that I thought, I'd like to see myself there one day. And, and that's that's how we are. We, we sort of look at positive male and female role models. And then we sort of try and copy little bits of it, not, not in entirety, but certain parts of it. And I think, if anything, over the last sort of, 10 to 20 years. I think our, our role models have changed a little bit through social media and stuff we see on television. And not in a, not in a great way, not, not in a positive way where you know it might be, it might be an athlete, it might, might be a soldier, it might be an actor, it might be something you've seen and you think that's the sort of person I would like to emulate. Those are the sort of features that I think are are good values to have. And we've sort of went away from that a little bit, I think, over over the last 10 years with social media and stuff. But, yeah, he he was one of my first uh, people that I looked at and thought, I can see why the SES are successful. They're just surrounded by this team ethic, this uh, professionalism that you've got to have, that self-motivation.
0: Yeah. And um, I I completely agree with you when, you know, you you take on sort of the the modern-day celebrities or, you know, air quotes, role models. Like when, when I was growing up, you know, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm 32. So late 80s, early 90s, sort of, you know, um, childhood. Um, my, my role models were the people that were around me, you know, my, my grandfather was a, um, was a ex um, Navy captain in the Royal Malayan Navy when it was still under the British rule. Um, you know, my my mom and dad were sort of my, my role models and my heroes growing up. I didn't, I didn't really, Maybe because there was no social media at the time, you know, um, I didn't look to the movies and go, you know, that's my role model or that actor is my role model. I was inspired, sure, by some of the things that I saw, um, and and it certainly influenced my decision. You know, when I became a police officer, uh, movies like Speed and Lethal Weapon, of course, um, but you know, it, it was it was more of the. I, th- I, w- I wonder if we've maybe lost that sense of community where we we look to these faraway places to these people who. You know live in sort of ivory towers and and think that you know they they care about us sort of thing um but yeah we've lost that potential connection with one another and, and learning from from the community around us because there's some great people out there you know like you only have to sort of pop into your local fire station or pop into a police station or your local you know like um reserves area and, and meet some pretty inspiring people sort of all around us so it, it it was it's nice to hear you saying as well that you know that that influence was was as a result of somebody who was actually there, and not you know some some guy or girl in the you know in the in the ether who who doesn't know you and who you don't know either. Um, so just before we get into the special forces side of things, do, were there any sort of great highlights in in the Royal Scots that um, that you sort of take to this day that you, you know, any any key moments that you've sort of cherished to this day?
1: Yeah, I think it's one of the things that I've never sort of let go of is that's where I came from, you know. And for a lot of people that end up in special forces, whenever they tell their story, they start it from, you know, when they got into the SES or SBS or wherever. And that's sort of when their journey started. And you forget that that, you know, you would you would never have got there unless, you know, the Royal Scots had prepared you as a soldier to put put you through selection. So I never I never forget where 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 I've come from and some of the training and some of the stuff I did. You know, we did a lot of tours in Northern Ireland in the Royal Scots. I think I did three tours before I went away on selection. And some of the highlights, you know, I, I went to Balmoral, not a lot of people know this, but I was the Queen's butcher. <laughs> and uh, I was just I was just sat on my own. In Balmoral as the, you know, the queen's butcher and cutting up all the stags and stuff and doing all the heads and stuff in, in the larder. And all the rest of the guys were out on the beats or out guarding the palace. And she would just come into the larder, like her or, or, or Philip, God bless him, just walk in and just shoot the breeze. Hey, there, young man, how's it going? And I'd be like, this is mental. I'm like 21 or something. And here's this like queen just coming in, shooting the breeze with her corgis. And it was absolutely just surreal. And I'm, I'm glad it was before the time of sort of Insta-twat and Facegram. Otherwise, you know, I'd be, I'd be grabbing a phone and I'd be taking a selfie or yeah. whatever. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm quite glad that I've just got those memories. But I got to dance with Lady Diana at the Gillies Ball and stuff. So those are memories that I'll, I'll have with me. I've got very fond memories and still very good friends from, from my time in the Royal Scots.
0: Uh, that's incredible. I mean, yeah, like so, fifteen joining the military from a broken home. Twenty-one, you're dancing with Princess Di, and uh, chatting to the Queen in, in in Balmoral. That's that's you know that's pretty pretty cool. Um, yeah, hashtag Queenie. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay. So we're yeah. So we so you're in Northern Ireland. You're saying um, basically keeping the seats warm for these operators coming in, where they sort of you know that black pajama, secret squirrel sort of crew tall dark and handsome is that would that be the accurate description of them yeah totally
1: and I think because of the whole mystery thing you always think like like what's gonna you know you you would just you'd never see them they would just appear and then that that you know they go and get the job done they'd be out and um, anybody that I'd ever come across from the SES I'd always thought yeah, they they just ooze, you know, like professionalism. Don't yeah. say anything. Not Not trying to large it. They just come in, do the job done, and out they go. And they're humble with you, you know. They, they treat you how you would want to be treated. And I thought I just wanna, I wanna be that person. I want, I want to give it a go. Um, and even just to see where where I sit, you know. I, it doesn't matter if I fail because this is something that a lot of people fail but I'll know where I sit. I'll, I'll know how, where I am because sometimes we're a big fish in a little pond mm-hmm. and we don't really know until we test ourselves in that sort of bigger environment. And then we sort of get a better gauge of where we were because they, we had a lot of good soldiers in the Royal Scots and we, we were really unfortunate that we didn't get more people through because we had a, we had a couple of, before I went on selection. And then when I passed, we are an influx of people because people had somebody to relate to. Right. And so they said, well, if Colin can pass it and, you know, Colin's nothing special, maybe I've got a chance of, of going for it. So we we had sort of three or four guys on selection for about the next three or four selections. We were just really unfortunate. We never got anybody through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. um, And yeah. So what, what was, uh what was selection like? Did, did you did you get support from the Royal Scots in, in terms of your application? Do you, I assume you have to get, you know, some sort of approval to go for this training. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, they, they weren't very experienced in the training. So if you realistically, if you want to train for selection, you need a good chunk off, you need a good sort of four weeks to go and do the route, get yourself health, uh, get up to speed on drills. Um, navigation micro navigation for when you go to the trees that sort of stuff yeah. and um a lot of guys didn't get to tr- I, I i got two weeks off and there's a guy a good friend of mine guy richardson who went on later to be a sort of coach with the british lions okay yeah. and uh he let me away he said there's a couple of weeks away you go and, and get yourself uh sorted and that that was that was the sort of two weeks prior to selection and i had a good friend uh cookie morgan cook and he'd just come back from selection and he got quite far he got a stand up fail in the trees and he was a really good soldier and he gave me some top tips of things to practice things to watch out for and so that put me in good stead so i've never forgotten that you know without those things those those are the things that help you get where you need to be so i've never sort of just forgotten them because i ended up where i was
0: yeah that's 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 good um so day one selection what was that like I think day one was probably the most daunting and people
1: always say to me what was the hardest part of selection you know was it interrogation was it the jungle and I think generally the jungle's the hardest part of selection generally but for me it was the first week because I'd went from being this big fish in a small pond to being absolutely overwhelmed by how I was just surrounded by people that were far fitter, stronger, faster, bigger, more experienced than me. And I think it gave me a lesson in life because when I first walked into the cookhouse on day one, there was 196 people and people far, far better than me. And one of the first things I did, which probably saved me, it was probably one of the most important things to get me through, was I decided I'm not going to measure myself against anybody because i think if there's a if you do that there's a chance you might come up short i just decided i'm not going to measure myself against anybody i'm just going to do the best i can do i'm going to give 100 percent, and that's going to be my measure that's my template for success and that's always your measure you're always your own measure you do the best you can and that's it because you're not other people and i think that was that was good for me because I was never at the front, and um, I was never really at the back. I was just somewhere in the middle, just yeah. trying to survive and get to the next day. It just so happened that the start of the selection there was one hundred and ninety six, and six months later there was twelve. Yeah. But I was still in the middle. I was still just trying to get to the next day. So that was one of the most important things for me.
0: Yeah, that's that's incredible. The the um, that sort of staying in the middle of the pack you know, not necessarily being what they call the gray man, but, you know, sort of just staying just sort of on the radar, not being too, you know, excellent at one thing, or you know, obviously the back of the pack, like you're saying, is that a, is that a common theme that you found in, in the people who did, you know, ultimately pass or, or become successful?
1: Yeah, and it was funny, and I don't get me wrong, I didn't want to be the grey man, I <laughs> wanted to be at the front, I, I wanted to be the guy that was leading, I just wasn't. Yeah. And um, so it, it was by no sort of uh, positive mindset, I'll blend in the middle, I could be at the front, but yeah. I'll just sit here at the middle and post uh, it. No, I, I was flat out, it just so happened, flat out for me was in the middle, but I think when I, when I looked around at the end, There were people you wouldn't have given a second look at. And actually, it was funny because when I was sort of towards the end of the trees, there was people came up after the trees and were like, I don't even remember you. Like, I don't even remember seeing you. And at first I was like, oh, my God, that's an insult. And then afterwards I was like, that's probably a good thing. You know, that's probably that's probably one of the things that seen me get through um, because I wouldn't want to stick out for. You know, they're not normally good reasons you stick out for. You know, there are things that can normally be held against you. So, nah, I mean, you wouldn't even give me a second look walking down the street. I'm not six foot four and, you know, built like the side of a house. I'm I'm just your average. I just look like your average grey man. And that probably helped me get through selection, you know, because I didn't really stand out for, for any reason in particular.
0: Yeah, well... I mean, at the moment, maybe not because you're a bit of a celebrity here in you know, the UK, at least. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big deal now. You're a big deal, I'm deal I'm now, mate. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah, your origin story, not so much, but, you know, right now. Um, <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people that, that I've spoken to who, you know, either don't pay attention or, you know, don't have sort of an idea of um, special forces or, in you know, SAS, that sort of thing, is that they expect like this, you know, man-mountain um you know muscle bound Arnold Schwarzenegger types uh who are just gonna go in there and, and destroy the place. But in in reality it's a lot of, like you said, the 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 guys and um that you wouldn't you know have a second look at. And and uh I think obviously the the in terms of physio physiology and stuff there's many different reasons for that, you know, the the in terms of you know your muscle to or your weight to power outputs and all that sort of stuff. But um it, on that, um, were, were you sort of, I suppose, happy with your performance when, when, when you went through? Like, Just looking back, do you think there are certain bits that you, you go, I uh, could have probably, you know, done a bit more training for this aspect um, and, and, you know, bettered my time or, or whatever it may be? Um, or was your mindset just, you know, I'm going till, um, till I pass out or die sort of mentality? Um, and you know just putting it all on the line sort of thing
1: yeah it's a good question and I think that one of the things I say that when you looked around at the end of it when there was sort of 12 of us and we're all sort of like me we're sort of average height build all the rest of it no real speedsters or man mountains on it and but I think one of the things that we probably all had in common was that mental resilience that thing that you know even though there was people on it far fitter than us far bigger or stronger when when the chips were down and we were all tired because once you get to a state where you're all tired it's a bit of a leveler it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if you can you know run four minute miles or or you know you can you know like carry 200 kg on your back or whatever once everybody's tired it's only it comes down to mindset it's the ones that have the mindset to keep getting up and keep putting one foot in front of the other and i had quite a good gauge because i was on selection with a guy a good friend of mine chris busby and he was a i mean he was a triathlete so you know cycling running i couldn't live with him and that but i used him as training because i thought you're gonna help me get cv fitter because Uh, you know I, I'll, I'll never be able to run or cycle swim as fast as you but by training with you i'm going to be better than i was you know yesterday so yeah. I, I would train with them and he didn't get through selection and I, I think that was a mixture of soldier skills possibly map reading i mean he he, he he'll know his story better than me but there was a lot of people like that. There was a lot of people that were naturally fitter, naturally faster. But once you're, once you're knackered, I mean, some examples where they would give us routes where you knew you couldn't pass because there's no, you couldn't do the four kilometers per hour. There was mm. just too many gradients, too many hills. Yeah. And so by the halfway point, people knew they'd failed. They'd failed the route. So what a lot of people did was they said, well, I've failed anyway, so I may as well just jack it in now. What's the point in finishing? Whereas I just finished. And whether it's partly stubborn, you know, that stubborn Scotsman type part of me, <laughs> or whether it's that part that said, you know, I'm going to go until they say I'm done. Yeah, I, I just kept going because I always thought there's a chance and I, I'm not going to be the person that takes me out of this. Somebody else has. this. This is something I've got control of. Which kind of takes me back to an interesting point from the childhood. One of the things that kept me going through my childhood was, I mean, physically, I was getting broken down all the time. But mentally, I was like the gatekeeper of my emotions. Mm. So nobody could make me scared or angry, happy. I held the key that decided whether that would happen. And it was one of the few things in my life I could control as a 13, 14, 15-year-old. So I did. I took joy in being able to say I'll control how I feel today and that's one of the things that got me through selection was I'm nobody can make me stop or quit yeah. or say that's enough or I'll go until someone says you're done and I think when you've got that mentality bearing in mind it's a volunteer course you know yeah. you can come off at any time That's something that as a carrot hangs over you for six months. For some people, that was a carrot they took sometimes because when they were tired, done, and didn't want any more pain, they took the carrot. For me, the carrot was never there. I was on a course. It was six months. I was there whether I liked it or not. And I think when you have that just small switch, it's enough to keep you going when times get tough. And it's the same thing that keeps people going when they're trying to climb Everest or they're running a marathon that ability to say, yeah, I'm hurting, I'm tired, I don't even know if I'm going to finish, but I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other until I, I die or somebody comes and says you're done. Yeah. And I think when you have that attitude, you you can get a more more done in life, not just on selection, with work, with family, with social things, just in life, it's a good trait to have.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and it's the reason why... So when I first started this podcast, I was... It was mainly because I I found myself speaking to a lot of people with such varied backgrounds and such that that same sort of mindset that you were just talking about. And I just feel like it, it can be applied to, you know, whether you're going through a selection, whether you're going through the police academy, you're going for a job interview, whatever it may be, you know, you're training for sports, um, you're playing an instrument, you know, whatever it is, um, it, just the, the, the not give up attitude, just to keep persevering. Um, you know that that mentality and I'm glad you also brought up the the gatekeeper of my of your emotions uh uh sort of um mindset because my wife and I were having a bit of a I'll I'll call it an uh, uh you know colorful discussion but um the 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 saying sticks and stones may break my bones and words will never harm me you know that for me growing up was 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 uh it was always said I feel like that it doesn't get said as much anymore because you know, people can be offended for all sorts of things these days. Um, I don't want to use the word snowflake culture because, you know, it, it is what it is. Like some people do get easily offended, some people don't. But I feel like that's exactly right, where you can be, you know, put through the ringer physically. Somebody can, you know, do, do all they want to you. But at the end of the day, like you said, it is up to you whether you let them toy with your emotions. It's, you know, the, the, that mental resilience is. It's only on you that that no one can tell you how to feel. That's, that's just, that's on you as a person. Um, And I'm glad you brought that up. And I feel like, you know, as a child growing up, like you were saying in a broken home, certain coping mechanisms maybe that you had growing up just probably served you through, through your entire, probably till now, I would imagine where you are able to control, regulate your emotions, um, you know, better than somebody who's never gone through a struggle and never had to really put their resilience to the test um so yeah so how how long is selection so just to get it right there's there's different phases like you were saying the jungle phase was the next sort of more difficult or the hardest one past week one for you
1: yeah selection six months and it's broken down into different phases so you have this sort of four week uh hills phase aptitude phase they call it which really is just to weed out people that might have little niggles, physical, uh, whether they can carry weight over hills. It's not really basic navigation. It's that sort of level. And so it's to sort of do the biggest sweeping and cull and, and and sort of get rid of those sort of people. You do need a bit of luck to get through because if you if you roll a, an ankle or you twist the knee or you get blisters, or whatever, then yeah. you, may, you maybe come off. I was lucky I got through. And then you do sort of six weeks in the jungle where you do this sort of pre-jungle training and then you spend four weeks under the jungle canopy. And that's you. You're on sort of hard routine for the whole lot. And you, you just, it's micro navigation. So now we're down to pacing because when they do maps of the jungle, a plane sort of flies over the top and takes a rough guess of what it might look like underneath underneath obviously under the jungle canopy it can be very different on the ground so the maps don't always equate so this is where you're pacing you're judging distance and stuff your bearings off a compass become really important and you've got you've got to be in control of your admin your soldier skills in particular your contact drills have got to be really good and so that's where I sort of I, I, I sort of came to my own in the jungle you know I wasn't breaking any records on the hills phase there's people far better than me but i was in my environment in the jungle you know i was a good soldier i was good with my weapon i had good contact drills and so that's probably where um, i sort of earned my crust and stuff when i was out there and that's another big kill uh, people come off in the jungle and then by the time you come back from the jungle they do another big cull where people are not they didn't think met the grade come off it and so you're probably only down to 20 odd people by the end of the jungle um i think we went out there with about 60 um so the hills phase got rid of a lot of people and then when you come back from the jungle you've got things like your interrogation phase where you're away on the run um and evasion resistance to interrogation um you do your ct stuff you do your parachuting um, so it's all about six months long. And like I say, by the end of it, you you have to have had a bit of luck. You've got to have been a decent soldier, but more often than not, you're meant to resilience. That was your one sort of superpower that that gets you through to the end.
0: Yeah. And I think for those who maybe have never been in a jungle or experienced jungle, like I'm from Malaysia originally. So you get a lot of that triple canopy style jungles where, you know at nighttime you you can't see sort of past your hand um and and sort of there's no landmarks to navigate around like you know ridges or mountaintops or anything like that you're sort of like you're saying you you get your compass your map and you're throwing an azimuth and and you know off you go and if if your calculations are off or if you don't know you know how how wide your gate is you know that, that that could throw everything off completely um so i could i could imagine that yeah that jungle phase would not have been uh not have been fun if you didn't know what you were doing and if you didn't have your like you were saying your admin on point um so six months of training and so once you're finished with your selection are you put straight into a um like a a squadron or or um, how does that work
1: yeah it's very unceremonial you know from 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 joining the army and everything's a ceremony after that everything's all you know it's, you know, the CEO just comes in, chucks you a berry and tells you to report to D squadron. And that's it. And then you, you go straight from the euphoria of having past selection to being the lowest common denominator in a squadron where you're at the lowest rung. You are the person that's sweeping up the hangar and washing the cars down and doing all those jobs. And again, it's one of those, and you alluded to it earlier, where it depends where you are in the cycle, because... If you go straight into operations, had I went straight to my squadron and went straight out on, you know, Operation Barris in Sierra Leone or straight out to Iraq or something like that, that would have been it. It would have been fine. I'm bloodied. I'm in the squadron. No dramas. I joined at quite a bad time. I joined during the CT phase, counter-terrorist phase, where you're really just training for counter-terrorist incidents. But because you're there for six months training, going through the motions with trains and planes and all the rest of the stuff, it's quite, it's not the best environment. And it hasn't got a good atmosphere, particularly particularly the squadron I joined in, because there was a lot of one-upmanship. There was right. a lot of people who were only, and it wasn't the senior guys. The senior guys were fine. It was the people that were only one or two selections in front of you. They were the worst because they treated you like garbage and they just wanted to see you trip and fall over and that was something I was alien to because I thought that wouldn't happen in my old unit if I was in the Royal Mm. Scots and a new guy came in we'd take him under the wing show him the ropes make sure he knew what he was doing because you know this guy's going to be fighting alongside you so it was something I think quite strange Mm. and I'm probably a bit of a anomaly in the fact that I I was one of the few people that asked to get posted back to my own unit after only three months. Um, I I just found it bizarre. I joined this, you know, SES to go off in operations, fight alongside, you know, like-sided people. And um, it wasn't that. It wasn't all the things I'd imagined. And I was very fortunate that my uh, OC and SART major at the time persuaded me otherwise. They basically said, Look, you're on a a two year cycle and you've hit a really bad point on it. You're on the CT days, but that's going to finish. Then we'll go into ops and then we'll go into training and, you know, it'll become a lot better. So just do two years, see what you think of the full cycle and then make a decision because you'll be armed with all the facts. And I was lucky I did because within that two years, you know, we'd been away, we'd done Stansted, we'd done Sierra Leone and all sorts. And yeah, my mind was. Completely changed, and more importantly, I was accepted in the squadron. People saw, you know, I was a decent soldier, and you got accepted. So it was, it was more other people's uh, perceptions rather than anything. But no, it was. uh, I'm I'm glad they did that. Otherwise, I would have had a very different career.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, like during the training phases, I would imagine, yeah, the, the you know the new guys trying to step up and sort of stepping on toes to to make themselves look good. But when you're out on ops you know it's it's a whole different ballgame because there's an enemy out there you have to look after one another um you know the the weakest link you know could bring everything down sort of thing so this is this is all obviously pre-9-11 because you're mentioning uh op barris also known as was it operation certain death is that what the uh yeah the, the the not the joke but the um the the non-official name was um and Stan said it was it was all two thousands wasn't it yeah yeah so what was the um the I think and we're coming up actually tomorrow on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is um which is crazy. It's 20 been 20 years now. But what was the op tempo like um in in the SAS at this, you know, pre-9-11 phase? Because I think a lot of people you, you know, when you hear military stuff, certainly for me because I'm I'm not from the UK. So you hear a lot of stuff post-9-11, um, you know, all these operations and, and this sort of the speed of war rapidly increasing, but pre-911 in the UK there was actually quite a lot going on in terms of you know the, the troubles um uh as you mentioned operation uh, barris sierra leone so yeah what was the pace like uh comparative to post 911
1: yeah i think i i would say one of the things i've been fortunate with is the you know, I, I didn't spend my whole career in the SES. So, you know, I was only there sort of seven years or whatever. But the seven years I was there was probably the busiest the SES has been. And probably one of the proof in the pudding was we, we, we had a guy, a famous guy, I won't mention, but he's, he, he was on the embassy and stuff. And he'd done stuff in Ireland. And he stood up uh, sort of after Iraq, probably around about 2005 or something. And he said the guys that have joined in the last five years have done more in the last five years than the guys that have been here the previous 20 years, just because of the amount of operations and stuff there was. And I think you mentioned Ireland. Ireland was one that the SAS was always involved in. But I think operationally, probably up till around time, 2000, It was quite quiet. You know, you could spend 10, 20 years in the SES. And apart from Ireland, you might not have seen that much. You know, you might have went across and did training tasks and stuff. But operationally, almost overnight um, from 9-11, the the, the tempo of operations became almost uh, to the point of burnout, where that two-year cycle where you're supposed to do your career promotional courses, your training... You were just going from up to up, you know, you were going Afghanistan, Iraq, Ireland, uh, Syria, Libya, wherever, wherever it was. And you were just it was it was crazy. And guys were getting not just in the SES, but right across the military were getting this sort of operational burnout, this fatigue yeah. where... You know, it was just full on. It was relentless, and and we 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 were the same. And of course, that's what I joined for. I was lucky. I was young, fresh. That's what I was there to do. Yeah. And looking back, I was really fortunate that I was able to do as many tours of Ireland, as many tours of Iraq, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, the Balkans. You know, there was uh, there, there was a lot at that time. And so I'm really I'm really fortunate. Um, but in other ways, other things that you know, all the jollies that you get to do, all the training courses, all that—that that probably took a back seat yeah. over that uh, over that period. But I wouldn't have swapped it. You know, you wouldn't want to join for twenty years and you don't manage to see or do anything. You you would have a very different outlook on your your military career.
0: Yeah, I, I was speaking to um someone the other day. I'll won't, I won't mention his name, but he was just just on online. Um, he was saying, you know, he. He feels really bad. Uh he he was a US Marine. Uh, because he I think he joined sort of mid 90s and then got out just before 9/11, is sort of got, got a little old. Um, and he was like, I just feel bad, like I didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, like we, all we did was training and um, you know, maybe a couple embassy gigs here and there, but that, that was it. Um and I think the that sort of mindset, it's a bit like Jarhead, I suppose, like the movie Jarhead, um, where you constantly training for something and then you don't actually get to use the skill sets that you've you know worked so hard to do um or to train for but at the same time I mean you for those sorts of soldiers or, or people in that position you know I think the understanding should be that you did what sort of your country or your nation wanted you to do for that period of time so you know, there shouldn't be any regrets or anything like that for anyone listening in that sort of position um, so what was your first sort of leadership or or first you know major operation post um you know now that you are an SAS operator
1: um I'm trying to remember what the first one would have been so we had a number of things at the same time so we had we had this sort of ship that was coming in it was supposed to have sort of anthrax or something on it and we did a, a boat assault on it and that sort of made the news and all the rest of it and then there was Stansted That was a hijacked uh, jet coming into Stansted airport. And I was in a bit of a unique position there. In fact, this one incident probably um, changed my whole perception and my own position within the squadron because I was on a forward air controller's course nearby and I just got sent straight to Stansted. So I was the first one there. And um, I just sort of got put out on the plane with my sniper rifle and (laughs) told to do commentary on it. And I was like, I'm like single-handedly on this plane and uh, the guys were saying you know it's going to be another 40 minutes before we get there so just hold the fort <laughs> and I was like what hold the fort I like 23 or something or 24 like I'm, I'm, I've been here like three months I'm gonna hold the fort <laughs> I was just praying for 40 minutes nothing happened I'd have to single-handedly storm the plane and probably mess it all up but no, luckily it went on about four days. It was a it was a long drawn out uh, siege, and um, that that was probably the first uh, large operation I, I was involved
0: in. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's that's incredible. So that and for people who don't know, Stan, so that was um, obviously the plane that was hijacked landed in Stansted. I would imagine there'd be, you know, every man and his dog out there in terms of you know police fire ambulance and all the services that you would normally have at a major operation so were you the only representative sort of from the SAS at the airport so 24 years old three months out of training the new guy yes yeah,
1: so yeah I was there for I was there for about the first hour hour and a half on my own with the police coming to me looking for answers you know where do you want us position what should we be looking for and everything and, you know, I was like, uh, and I sort of, I, I kind of grew into it. At first I was like way at my depth and we've all been there where you're put in a position and it's like sink or swim. Yeah. You know, you either run with it, you know, we might say, you know, bluff it or yeah. uh, enthuse confidence and let them know the SES is here and we've got this. And so I think probably um, I was a bit of both, you know, I was a bit, I, I wasn't, you know, and at Cobra level in terms of managing an operation, but (laughs) I was able to lose enough confidence and bluff enough people that they thought, oh, we'll be fine, you know, the SES have have got this. So I was just sort of doing commentary and logging stuff that was happening and asking for basic stuff like, you know, keep the press at bay, let's find out how many passengers, identify the exact mate and model of this aircraft, identify who might be the uh, terrorist takers, Um, what their arms and demands are any injury elderly children on board let's get food on the plane let's get eyes and ears on there you know all the common sense stuff yeah you know um just scrambling to think of of things and and luckily that sort of bought us time until the the cavalry arrived and i was back (laughs) at the bottom of the
0: ladder yeah just a breath of uh, fresh air when they arrived it's um that sort of not fake it to man maybe fake it till you make it but one of my favorite ones is um you know always wrong but never in doubt that's uh, that's, that's how i live my life basically i, I can always be corrected <laughs> at a later stage you know but like at the, at the moment in time that i'm saying it i'm never in doubt <laughs> um yeah. so sandstead was 2000 so as i mentioned before obviously september 11th to, tomorrow i don't know when this podcast is going out it might be the week after but what where were you when um you know when the news of the towers sort of started happening
1: yeah i remember being in our interest room which is like our sort of the room we congregate as a squadron um it's a sort of meetings room um where we have what we call our prayers like our meetings and uh, they put it up on the big sort of tv the sky news thing and uh, remember watching as the second plane came in and it was like, right, this this is going to have repercussions. We're, we're going to go noisy with this. Mm. And um, sure enough, over, over the course of the following weeks and months, things uh, things took off. And we, we prepared for that, you know, right away. We, we got sent out to the desert training in a man in Jordan for desert-type warfare yep. in our uh, pinkies. The vehicles changed, tactics changed from the first gulf war and uh, we had this sort of ct side this sort of building takedown side that they, they probably didn't have in the first gulf it was just about you know causing havoc and disruption in the western desert but bizarrely we found ourselves in exactly the same areas um, on the same routes as the sort of bravo 2-0 guys during the first gulf but we were looking for sort of the WMDs, weapons yeah. of mass destruction and stuff. And we were told there was 23 of them out in the Western Desert. And we just had to find them and destroy them yeah. and just cause havoc, you know, sort of behind enemy lines.
0: Yeah. So like s- s- small unit tactics, sort of just disruption and then finding those um, high priority assets and destroying them. Is that, was that, that was the yeah. initial, initial phase, yeah.
1: Yeah, we'd go away in sort of half squadron strength, so sort of two troops, and we'd just drive about and we had a, we had a brief intelligence about where some of these WMDs were, yeah. um, and sent code words to to bring in fast air and destroy them, if we yeah. couldn't destroy them ourselves. Um, and, and and that that was that was our job, certainly initially when we went out to the desert, and then that slowly changed as it became more of a sort of urban warfare as we were brought into Bajra. In yeah, by
0: sort of insurgency style warfare and at this time yeah. in terms of like your personal life are you are you married or like kids or anything at this stage or no i
1: i wasn't married until um after i came out of the military okay. yeah. um and and then obviously got divorced thereafter but um yeah two 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 great kids as a, a result of that marriage so that's uh yeah that's one, one of the great things
0: yeah it's amazing so so through your military career then sort of just mindset was just all military really there's um you know not to say they're distractions but you could you could just put everything sort of into your career um which which i would imagine you know from from a lot of speaking to a lot of people who have had families through their careers um would be quite beneficial in a way where you could just be selfish get involved um especially like you were saying the tempo changing where you know your two-year cycles were just basically you were out in the sandbox and at war effectively um so that was iraq did you did you do any tours um through afghanistan
1: yeah i did two did one tour of afghanistan and uh, obviously sierra leone um, I'd been out in Ireland as well with the yeah. regiment, so yeah, it's sort of it was a it was a real busy time, and ma- yeah. managed to get myself around the the different bazaars that the regiment was working in at the time, and and quite 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 glad as well because you know depending on that sort of those timescales, you you might have missed one of those theaters of war if you were you know you you joined earlier, you joined later,
0: yeah. And I asked Afghanistan specifically, obviously, currently sort of pull out of Afghanistan at the moment, very topical. Uh, do you have any any thoughts or anything that, um, you know, as somebody who is there and operating there um, and I assume, well, I'm assuming, but from the private security sector, you know, I, I'd imagine you'd, you'd known guys, and, you know, who are contractors there as well. What, what are your sort of thoughts of um, the, the pull out and the, the withdrawal out of Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, I always think when you're military, particularly the level I was at, you can't really have any overpowering political or religious sort of ideologies. you you just send there to do a job. I think people can argue whether it was worth it or not. It's hard to see how how it was given where it's going now. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's probably not in doubt is the manner in which they pull pulled out because that could have been handled a lot better I think it's it's almost like they did it overnight and if you're going to be anywhere for sort of 20 years then you know pulling out overnight is never going to be the right answer so I I don't think that part of it's in doubt you can have your own views on it and I'm not saying one view is right one view is wrong But from my own view, I think the manner in which they pulled out can never really be seen as uh, having been done the right way because that had to be done in a a stage-prolonged way, organised, that gave everybody the best chance of success. And I'm I'm not sure that was the case with Afghanistan. And hopefully, you never know, but things like our, our time in Iraq and Afghanistan and Ireland and places like that will have shaped our mentality for make, making decisions in the future because one of the biggest failings we have in life and in the military is that we don't learn from our mistakes yeah. we, we look back and we make the same mistakes again or we do things in the same way because that's the way we've always done it we should always learn from things even if we didn't do them particularly well so that it gives us a, a better chance of success in the future
0: yeah absolutely right and and just for you know the audience and stuff listening. up, To be clear, this is not going to be a political podcast at all. There's, you know, everyone is entitled to their opinions and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I the, the, I sort of have the same mindset as you. Like, 20 years in a country, um, the the way that it, the withdrawal happened just seemed like you know somebody just went, oh yeah, I, I suppose we should withdraw, you know, next Tuesday, and then sort of just expected everything to fall into place. But you would imagine that, you know, the military, the you know, all the other agencies would have had heaps of contingency plans, um, you know, would have accounted for a lot of things had there been time to to properly prepare for withdrawal. Um, So yeah, so take me through uh, sort of the the latter end of your SF career. Um, What was what was the pace like? um, And and yeah, what was the last sort of few sort of moments that you had at, at your old job?
1: Yeah, it was it was it was pretty relentless, and um, I was sort of penciled in in the squadron. I, as you get past that sort of five, six, seven years in the squadron, you can sort of see where you're going. You know, you've got a you can see whether you're going to end up sort of one way or going another. And mm. um, yeah, it was looking quite positive for me in some of the places I was I was going to end up. And um, I had that another of those sort of crossroads moments where. I was sent to um southern Iraq um on a sort of looking after intelligence services. And, and uh yeah, got got rolled up on that. And I kind of knew I could see it coming. There was lots of little things that were going wrong. Mm. And I, I guess after it happened, I had to make a decision then about my career because those were this was all stuff that was happening out with my control and it wasn't how I imagined it. It wasn't how I saw it panning out. And I was, I could see the future. I could see the sort of headshed the next couple of years and the way things might turn. And I, I, didn't, I didn't like the way it was going. And not just me, there was a lot of people left at the same time, which sometimes you get after a big sort of operation. You get an influx of people that leave. Yeah. And when I left, there must have been, eight to ten people in the squadron left around the same time over the, about a six-month period, yeah. which is too many for a squadron to take those sort of losses. Um, and and we all sort of left for quite similar reasons. And, um, yeah, that was one of the hardest decisions I had to make because I wasn't sure I could cut it out in the real world. I'd, I'd been in the Army since I was 15, and um, I was fortunate in a way in that I... I fell into the security world uh, alongside people that I was in the squadron with. So it was almost like I never left, um, looking after CNN, looking after Saudi royal family, people like that. And then I made a decision to go to university. I was quite bored with some of the security work, uh, particularly when you're overseas, out in places like Iraq, because you spend a lot of time sitting on your butt doing nothing. And I wanted to try and keep my brain active and do stuff. And so I was doing online courses and stuff. And I applied to university and, um, and then I started applying for just normal jobs. And not a lot of people know this, but I applied for in excess of a thousand jobs over the course of a year without a single interview. And I was getting a bit worried. I thought I'm not gonna find my place in the world. And um, I was walking down the Royal mile in Edinburgh and there was a guy selling the big issue. And I thought I'll buy that cause I'll be selling that soon. And I looked on the back of it and there was a, a job for a um, volunteer project worker and the theme was conflict resolution. <laughs> and so I saw the irony in it and I thought I'm going to apply for that. So I applied for the job and I got an interview yes. and I thought I'm going to go to the interview just for experience of having a job interview. So I sat in front of these three women and uh, one of the women says to me, Colin, can you tell me a time, give me an example of a time you have successfully resolved a conflict? So two hours later, I walked out of there. They all had PTSD and uh, I got a phone call and they said, Colin, you, you've got the job. I said, really? And they went, yeah, you, you're, you've you're got the job. I said, well, what was the job? And they said, well, you're going to go into secondary schools and you're going to teach conflict resolution. So I went along to Chari I was working with at the time, and I said, um, what's, the, what, what's the material? What, what have you got? And they went, nothing. You're going to make it because we just won the, won the contract. So I went into these schools teaching conflict resolution, and um, it sort of got success. You know, people were staying in school. There was less violence. They weren't running away from home. And so the Prince's Trust got invited, and they shadowed me. And eventually they used my conflict resolution workshop as part of their year long Excel program, which is run throughout the UK. So that was another of my crossroads in, in, in my life. And that led me into work. I got in university and stuff. And it was another sort of turning point for where my, my life was heading. And people say, oh, you know, it's great. You help those kids and all the rest of it. And actually the opposite is true. They, they pretty much saved my life because at the time, I wasn't finding my way in the world and that was the sort of little stepping stone in a, a different world to, to get involved in.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's, a, you know, that, that age old um, sort of thing when you're transitioning out of, you know, like you are saying, 15, you're sort of institutionalized in the military in the ways of, of you know, of war and everything to transition out into civvy street, as they say, it's, you know, it would be quite daunting. Um, I think mean, people you know, when you're in the military, everything's sort of in a, in a way done for you. Like, you know, you, you know where you need to go. You know what your orders are. Um, there's decision making during the operation. Sure. But in terms of the big picture sort of side of things, you don't have to really worry about a whole lot. And then you're, you find yourself, you know, on CV Street and you've got bills, you've got this and that and interviews. Why do you think, um, you know, the, the sort of thousand um, job applications, is there a reason why, You think you didn't get a a callback for any of them or?
1: Yeah, I think there's a variety of reasons. One was because maybe my CV wasn't a great fit for the jobs that I was going for. And uh, each CV probably wasn't individually um, curtailed to match the job description of the job. Uh, Another reason would be that I think HR, when they see my paper, and it says, you know, XSES, underwater knife fighter and stuff.
0: A sniper. It's yeah. a
1: safer bet just to put that paper in the in the bin because, you know, if you've got somebody even with three, six months relevant work experience, it, it's a it's a closer match. And yeah. I think some people just thought maybe my CV was a bit ridiculous, you know. I think the most I think one of the most important parts of it was you're trying to put your life on a piece of paper. Mm and you're not getting in front of somebody. And the only time I really had success was when I was in front of somebody. So even when I applied to colleges to get into university, I went along to university with my little red book that said I was a great soldier. And they said, we don't care. You've got no qualifications, go back to school. So I then applied to colleges to try and get a sort of um, diploma to get into university. And I applied to all these Edinburgh colleges and they all rejected me. And it sort of brings me on to rejection. Rejection is really important in building your resilience as well because rejection can make or break you. And I guess I've been really fortunate stroke unfortunate over the years where I've, I've faced quite a lot of rejection. So when I applied for jobs, I was getting rejected. When I applied to colleges, I got rejected. I got a guaranteed interview for this college at New Battle Abbey And he said, everybody will get an interview, regardless of what this piece of paper says. And that's what saved me because I sat in front of somebody, looked somebody in the eye, and over the course of 15 minutes, they could see I wanted to be there. And I might not be the sharpest tool in the box, but I was gonna apply myself. So I I got into the college and because I was so engrossed in education, particularly things like history and philosophy and psychology, I sort of, that seed of education sort of got planted. And and it's like anything, if you're interested in it and you want to do it, you're going to perform better. So I think the minimum you could do was 12 subjects over the course of a year at New Battle. And I did 21 (laughs) just because I wanted to do everything. I was that guy, I was like, I want to do everything. Everything's brilliant. You know, that annoying guy that's over enthusiastic. And, I did 21 subjects and I've got 21 A's, right? So I've got my little diploma and I'm like, right, I'm sending off to uh, Cambridge, St Andrews, and Edinburgh. And all three rejected me. And I was <laughs> like, what? I got 21 A's? Like, what? So then I got, uh, I managed to get in through the sort of back door at Edinburgh where they had a mature student um, guaranteed interview thing for their SWAT program. So I got in front of somebody, and as soon as I got in front of somebody, I got in. So I got into Edinburgh University, and just because I wanted to be there, people always focus on the result of university. And and my result was that I got a first-class honours degree in, in history, and I'm the only person, I think, to have won all three academic awards. So best in history, best student, best dissertation. And everybody says, oh, man, you're just a natural academic. And, uh, well, you know better than that, but I'm not a natural academic. All I did was I outworked everybody. So when we had an exam, uh, most people just practice for an exam once, maybe twice. They'll sit down, they'll try and write a paper. I would do it about 20 times. So I'd set the timer, I'd get the pencil, I'd get it, and I'd set myself three questions. And I'd write. And then I'd see at the end, I'd go over the things that I'd missed and I'd do it again and I'd do it again until I knew exactly how many words I could do for each. Say it was three questions. I knew in an hour and a half I could write 750 words each or whatever. I had it down to to the absolute thing. So when I went into that exam hall, I'd already done the exam many times in my head. All I needed was the bit of paper and the three questions. And it was a matter of time. How many words could I write in the time? And so I maxed out, I basically I maxed out my potential. Mm. My potential you know, was here. There was people far smarter than me. They were just operating at 70%. Yeah. They thought they were studying, they thought they were applying, but they had other things going on in their life. They had to get work and rent and find money and socialize and go drinking and do all the things that students do. For me, my head was in the game. I just had to outwork everybody. So I'm I'm not the smartest, uh, but but I um I, I maxed my potential at university.
0: So and to to me that sounds like um it almost mirrors you know selection as well, like just that outworking that putting one foot in front of the other, but just translating it to to you know the, the brain power really. Um. Uh. And I, I like your your point about rejection and. And uh, I want to get onto that as well, as somebody who's just sort of left a bit of an institution looking for jobs and stuff, you know, same thing, like, uh, you know, you think you're, uh, you're, you're all that and everything. And then you come out here and you're like, oh, actually these skills, you know, I think they translate, but on paper, like you were saying, you can't really convey that they do. Um, I was listening to a podcast uh, with a, a Jocko Willink podcast, and he had um, this guy named Johnny Kim. He was a Navy SEAL he was, then he went to Harvard Medical School, became a doctor, and now he's an astronaut. So, you know, the classic sort of overachiever, but he was talking about um, the same thing, rejection uh, and just lessons in humility. And, you know, you coming out of the SAS or him coming out of Navy SEAL um, sort of operations and then having to do things that, you know, on paper, yeah, they might be sort of somewhat beneath you, you know, like you, you were just coming off a mission where you're you're a sniper and you're getting people off a a plane you know hostages off a plane and now you're you know you're applying in front of people who you know haven't really had to lift a finger or do or do much maybe potentially in their in their lives outside of academics um was that lesson in humility you you know sort sort of something that you um you took well or did, did it was that a bit of an adjustment as well
1: I think it was an adjustment because when you leave a regiment like the SES, you've got in a high paid job, people have such a high opinion mm. of you. And then you start applying for, uh, you know, quite, quite high profile jobs. And then you come down the scale yeah. until the very, I think the very last job I applied for was a nighttime security guard at the National Library of Scotland. And I thought, I should be able to do security. I'm ex-military and the library will help if I'm going to be studying. And I got this letter back and it said, due to the overwhelming um, calibre of applicants, you have not been selected for interview. (laughs) And I still have that letter now. I framed it and I've kept it because sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need that hard slap. Like you're not all that and you need to keep working if you want to be where you are. And sometimes when I was struggling with a dissertation, I was writing and I thought, ah, do you know what? I could just bend this and just like, you know, go off and do some fizz or whatever. I just keep looking at that letter. And that letter has always been good for me because it's a sign that no matter what your accomplishments, no matter what you've done, you'll still be rejected at the lowest level. Not yeah. perhaps of what you, what you are, what you think you are but in other people's eyes. And I think one of the other things that helped me, and humour and humility are one of the SES's ethos. One of the things that helped me was when I went into acting, and as I was going through university, one of the things that suited um, university life was acting. Whether you were doing acting or whether you were doing extra work, it was something you could do spur of the moment. If you knew you were doing nothing on Thursday, you could go and do something. Or if you knew you had every weekend off you could take these certain acting roles and acting is brilliant for facing rejection because it has absolutely zero to do with your uh natural ability or very low amount mm. it's what the other person is looking for right so i can i can i can be perfect for the role i can go and do the role as i think it should be done if it's not seen through the eyes of the whoever's the casting agent or whoever the director or producer is, it doesn't matter yeah. because it will be what they're looking for. So there was many additions I went to and I thought I've smashed that. No, like I've worked at it. I know the lines. I've done it in and side out. I've done it a couple of ways to show them dimension and spectrum and I wouldn't get the call and I'd think what? And then I would see the advert or I'd see the part on TV and I'd be like, that's just weird. Like, why would you play that that way? And it made me realise that it's nothing to do with what I think. It's nothing to do with the eyes through which I look. It's it's things that are out with your control. And so not to take things personally. Yeah. And I think it's one thing that the majority of actors are good at is facing rejection because there's people that have become famous, you know, successful actors in their 40s and 50s just because... That was the time that somebody saw the potential that was in them. That what what it is. So it doesn't mean you're a good or a bad actor. I think it just means that somebody sees something in you, and you're aligned in how you see what that role is. So it's you know you face rejection all the time in in yeah. acting and going for parts, and that's part of the that's part of the role. I've had some belters. I've had ones where I've auditioned for the role of an S.E.S. commander, and not got it. <laughs> and I think if i can't play that part if i don't know what goes into that part what chance have i got but actually the things that you the, the way you see an sas commander and the way television wants to yes. see an SA commander are, are are slightly out of line and so you've always got to remember that even if you think you're perfect for the part that the people are looking for different things
0: exactly and and on the rejection front you know the the gatekeeper of your emotions again that's uh you know that 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 mechanism that that sort of, in my opinion, helped you through so many things that you've you've applied yourself to. Um, so first class honors in history. Uh, and then where, where did that take you after that? Did you did you pursue like sort of a, a you know masters or or anything after that?
1: Well, it was another of those like crossroads things where as I was doing security, I also did a, an Emlet and terrorism at St. Andrews. And the actual, the inlet and in terrorism actually led to more work because okay. I was editing papers and journals and stuff. And I helped sort of co-author other books that not a lot of people know about. Um, one's on terrorism and counterterrorism. And I sort of predicted the. France would be the next uh, hotspot for terrorism. Um, and then literally within a year, Paris had it kicked off and stuff. Yeah. So that was my first sort of venture into books and stuff. And um, the history thing, it didn't really lead to a job as such. But what happened was I applied to do a, um, a PhD. And... I didn't get the funding for it. And it was touch and go. It was something that was going to, um, it was something that was the link between Scotland and America. That was the funding um, criteria for it. And I'd done my dissertation on the Scottish Enlightenment. I'd always been fascinated by the Enlightenment period. Mm. Like why it happened in that little period, when it did and where it did. Like Why was, why was there an Enlightenment in Scotland and not in England? Right those things fascinated me and that's what I wrote my dissertation on and I put my case forward for a PhD that there was an obvious link between America and Scotland and I just missed out on funding I didn't get it and actually looking back I'm quite happy because my career took a totally different path which I'm quite happy with I didn't know that at the time but with a PhD in history you're limited to the sort of things you could do. Um, you know, you're pretty much going down an academic route, teaching or, or whatever. Not that I mind teaching. In another world, I would have been a teacher and I, I quite enjoy teaching. I sort of taught within the military. And as you know, I still teach. I like teaching, but um, it was a different path. But when when I left, I um, I ended up doing a job up in Aberdeen, and it was just the guy uh, Matthew Warner took a took a sort of gamble on me, and he he has his own uh, company now in um, Edinburgh doing sort of risk management for mainly the oil and gas sector, but right yeah. across. And um, like me, he was ex infantry uh, colonel, um, got got took me on an interview and I got involved in oil and gas sector up in Aberdeen around the sort of risk management side. And it was sort of during that time that I first got involved in public speaking because mm. there was a big oil and gas conference up there and the topic was risk. And so you had people talking about financial risk, you had people talking about operational risk. And then you had this, the speaker for the event was this skydiver And he was going to skydive in and then run up to the pulpit and do this talk about risk um, from skydivers. And he cancelled. He cancelled like two days before the event. So everybody's flapping, right? And everyone's like, oh, no, where are we going to get a speaker from? And I said, look, if you're desperate, I can talk about risk, but it will be from sort of a military perspective and not quite in the oil and gas sector. So they were desperate and they got me into the talk. And um, at the end of it, I got this like standing ovation. And this woman came up and was like, oh my God, you know, how long have you been speaking for? And I was like, literally an hour. I said, I've never, I've never done public <laughs> speaking before. And she said, you should do public speaking. She said, you'd make a career of it. Yeah. And in the back of my head, I was like, that's not a proper job. Like that's just people that go and talk for a living. Like, yeah. what is that? That's not a proper job. <laughs> And um, then she said, register with this company, I registered with them. And this uh, company said, oh, do you want to go and do this uh, talk for this company? In fact, I think one of the first talks I did was for um, Microsoft. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, talk for Microsoft. I said, what do you want to talk on? They said, oh, you know, teamwork, leadership, resilience. I said, okay. And they said, well, they'll fly you down to London, they'll put you in this hotel, and they'll give you like £3,000. I was like, What? they were like yeah we'll get, they'll give you like three thousand i was like "Yeah, sign me
0: up <laughs>
1: so ever, ever since then i've uh, i've done it and it sort of taken me all over the world and main, mainly across the uk but i've enjoyed it and i meet different people different organizations cultures and it always helps me keep stuff fresh and uh you know l- look at the stuff i'm doing and tailor each talk towards the organization but i, I really enjoy it and um I was lucky, you know, that was one of those little things in my my life that led to a job that I love doing.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And were you doing this at the same time as, um, you know, your sort of uh, contracting sort of, or or was that all behind? Initially,
1: and then things sort of broke away in a different dimension. So one of the things that happened was when I finished university, um there was an article in the paper the Scotsman up here and it said you know ex ses guy goes to university blah 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 <laughs> wasn't much of a story but there was a there was a researcher at um, Rockstar games uh cheska oh, yeah. and she phoned me up and she said are you interested in doing motion capture for video games and i went yeah absolutely and she went right come in on wednesday for an edition and then i went and googled what motion capture meant <laughs> and um I go in on this Wednesday, and at that time, Rockstar Games were quite small. I say small in the sense that their office was quite small. So they had a a, a little motion capture area, and then round the area were people just tapping away on computers and doing all their stuff. And so the guy said, right, uh, Colin, here's a baseball bat. We've got uh, a prisoner strapped to a chair. You're going to interrogate the prisoner for three minutes, and at the end of that three minutes, you're going to beat it up. And I was (laughs) like, right, okay. So I did this audition, and at the end of it, I don't know whether it was all my rage and everything coming out, I just smashed this thing up, and there's bits of chair flying everywhere. And I was sitting there. I must have got quite carried away. So I'm sitting there, like, panting away, holding this baseball bat, and everybody in the whole office is like this, just kind of looking at. And <laughs> um, and they all started clapping. They were like, "Whoa, whoo, that was awesome, man. That was awesome. And um, I was like, right, okay. And I've been working for them ever since, and that's been about 12 years. So... Yeah, I've literally just finished Red Dead Redemption 2. Um, I sort of play Arthur Morgan and, and stuff in that. And uh, we've done Grand Theft Auto and Max Payne, Ellie Noir, all those sort of games. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And that's one of the, another of those little sort of stepping stones where you go into a career which I love. Every day is different. So, yeah, I love, I love doing the motion capture stuff.
0: That's, that's incredible, yeah. So, 15-year-old you, broken home, joins the military, SAS, gets your first-class honours uh and then now you're in video games (laughs) that's brilliant yeah i guess there's a little bit about luck there and crossroads and networking
1: and being at the right place at the right time there's a lot to be said for mental resilience facing rejection um being able to keep going when things are are tough your own your own hard work but like anywhere you're you're always a victim of your circumstances Mm -hmm. my path could easily have taken a very different one and uh that, that's life isn't it it's um you, you can be really good at something and not end up where you maybe deserve to be but not let it affect you just control the things you can and, and hopefully you'll you'll get where you need to be
0: yeah make the most of things as well um and how, how did you fall into sort of the horizon like because obviously as a, as a guy who was on the cp course i was what like 20 22 days 23 days um you know the the when you took our our um, our course, it was you know, fantastic presentations, and um, obviously you have a passion for speaking and 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 being a, a you know a great teacher as well. Um, was that something that just aligned with all the stuff that you wanted to do? You know, teaching it, it drew on your experiences uh, in the military and in the private sector, um, and you know that bit of public speaking I suppose as well to the classroom. But how, how did you um, and Horizon link up?
1: Yeah, so I've been working with them for a few years and um, I'd, I'd known some of them. And first when I got involved, I was just doing things like the surveillance package mm. or the hostile environment because it suited me. It was two or three days here and there rather than, you know, sort of four week or three weeks stint. And so I couldn't really uh, commit to doing the whole course But over COVID, uh, sort of my life changed. There wasn't public speaking. There wasn't motion capture. So I had to quickly adjust. And so I did a lot of writing. I wrote a book on resilience. I wrote a fiction book. I wrote half of a book on public speaking, which I'm still sort of writing now. And so that took up most of my time because I thought if autobiography ever comes out, that I'll have books to be able to follow on from it. And I may as well use this quiet time now. You know, I just did what most people did, just change my goals, change the things I was doing.
0: Yeah.
1: And one of the things I was able to commit to was doing the security courses. So, um, yeah, I did I did some of them from sort of start to finish. That's not normally the case, and then I've stepped back again now, and we'll probably just do things like the surveillance yeah. and hostile environment now. So, yeah, you were one of the the few lucky ones.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> got, or, or not? Well, you know, got, got a photo with a celebrity, so I'm um, I'm happy now. Um, the books you're saying, so what what are what are the um, the books that you have? Are they are they out yet? Can people buy them or?
1: Yeah, so I've I've got my autobiography, The Pilgrim is with the MOD currently, I'm hoping to hear back in a few weeks, and if that's the case, hopefully, probably next year, that'll, that'll come out, and okay. then I have sort of, I have two or three books that are ready to come out after that, I just, uh, it would make sense to put that one out first, and then the other ones after.
0: So the, the the Pilgrim, was it? yeah. So um when you say it's with MOD, is that just for them to basically vet and make sure that you're not spilling any secrets and, and that sort of thing?
1: yeah, and I, I mean, I'm confident there's no secrets in it, but the the problem is that there's handovers in disclosure cells, so they hand over every couple of years, and then I go sort of three steps forward, two steps back, oh, okay, yeah, and it takes that said things like uh you know here's a redaction table, and I'll do things, and then they'll say, no, you, you can't do it but." So I'm hoping that this time there's a sort of more of a line in the sand about um, what what can be put in there and what can't. And of course, if I just wanted to write a book about all sorts or I wanted to take out most of it, I would do, but I think people would, I I think like other books that have come out that reportedly are about SF stuff have very little SF in it. They've just just, on there to sell copies. I'd quite like to have some of the operational stuff in. So I'm quite happy to wait until that time they say right okay you can put this is what you can put in it so hopefully next year that will be out
0: yeah it, it's it's um when you mentioned that you had a, you know you're writing a book about resilience public speaking and the autobiography i feel like when you're exactly right when you pick up a book with whether it's the sas or it's got a navy seal trident on it or you know a green beret book um it, it's just a, it's not just but it's a book about motivation or resilience or other you know key topics as opposed to a book about the individual and the operation. So um, it's it's kind of, it's nice that you're playing that long game and, and making sure that, you know, that sort of stuff is included in the book. And then additionally, yeah, like, you know, release a book about resilience. That's that's, that's a good way to do it. Um, so what's what's the, that, that sort of present time, what's the future? Like, tell me about what you've got going on now into the future.
1: Yeah, so the the, the talks have started back up again. So I've started doing those, um... The motion capture, I think, will start up uh, in the next sort of four weeks, which should be good. I'm still writing away in the background, still doing whatever consultancy, security and surveillance stuff's going on. And then the other thing that sort of has been taking up uh, quite a bit of my time over the last year, is the charity stuff and the mm. sort of corporate team building stuff. So the charities, I mean, I'm involved in a few, Anchor Some Association, uh, Who Dares Cares, Lee Rigby Foundation, Pilgrim Bandits, NSPCC. I now sit on the children's panel. So where I used to, you know, sit on the other side of the children's panel. Now mm. I'm a panel member and yeah. sit on that side. So that was quite a lot of training to get through that. And then the corporate team building. So we take companies. We might take anything from a dozen to 200 people. We'll take them up in the highlands and we'll build sort of bespoke missions for them. So it might be things like rescue a downed pilot. You know, get a raid, break the yeah. radio code, whatever it is. We'll split them in the teams and then we'll send them off James Bond style, and they'll have to go through abseiling kayaking shooting on ranges speed boats, and then <laughs> the mission at the end and that i've really enjoyed doing that and that's really sort of taken off so we've had a lot of interest in that and that's it's just through word of mouth so you know if you google stoic events you'll see a little bit about what we're about but we we've got a few of those coming up and really looking forward to them they're great fun and there's there's something for everybody on them
0: Awesome. I'll, I'll um, add the links and stuff to the description of the podcast and hopefully people check that out as well. Um, look, I think we've been going an hour and a half now. It's, it's flown by. Um, so just a few sort of fluffy style questions. You know, as a historian, if you could go back to like a, a, a point in history, are there any specific areas, like you were saying before the Scottish Enlightenment, are there any other points that you would want to you know, venture back into and, and sort of experience? Oh,
1: I don't know. I'd quite like to go back to the Roman times and actually see how far, you know, the Romans got. You know, where did that Twelfth Legion go? You know, <laughs> with the, yeah. uh, you know I played Calgacus, who was the swordsman, like the picked back in the day. So it would be good to go meet him for real and say, I played you. And yeah, right? uh, the Enlightenment period was was interesting. It was an interesting period, particularly around where I am in Edinburgh. There was a lot of great minds around mm. there in the same sitting around the same rooms and pubs and stuff that you would probably never, you would never get that yeah. again. Um, so yeah, as a as a story, and I'm always fascinated by little pieces of history and things that have happened, and that's kind of what's shaped our world. So I'm always reading history books.
0: Exactly.
1: Or I'm, I'm one of the ones that goes on holiday and then I'm away exploring for a week while while people are on the beach. So I, I like that side of things.
0: And and on that history front, if, if you could be sort of, you know a, a past war fighter um past soldier any sort of battles that you you uh not would like to be a part of but you would have been sort of interested uh, in in partaking in
1: yeah lords um who would i like to be There's so many great ones maybe alexander the great my, my middle name's alexander i like you, to yeah. think i was i was called after after him but yeah, there's there's probably been been loads, but just seeing how how battles can be won, you know. I mean the Scottish ones are obvious, aren't they? You know, the, the Bannock burns and stuff, yeah. it would uh it would be great to be um back in those days. But yeah, we can only we can only dream once once was a soldier. Once yes. was a soldier.
0: <laughs> And then, you know, with with the sort of life you've lived, the multiple careers, what at the end of the day, you know, in this moment in time, what would you like to be known as? Like, would you like to be known as the SAS operator, the historian, the motivational speaker, or or all of them? Like, what well, if if you could put pinpoint something right now,
1: um, I think I, I'm quite I've been quite fortunate the past that I've managed to go down and come out the other end of. So I guess now my focus is around a lot of the things about either helping people through the charities through children's panel and stuff or helping people grow through the corporate team building and I feel like you know I'm not old and decrepit but I felt I feel like I've managed to you know get get through a lot for for what I've been doing and so I'm quite content with that I'm not I I don't really need to be known for any of that but I, I quite enjoy some of the the giving back side of things I'm doing now, and I'm I'm in a privileged position where I can do some of that. So no, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing the charity stuff. I enjoy doing the corporate team building, and I'd be quite happy doing that until I am too old and de- to to But I'll <laughs> still keep grinding along until someone says, "Colin, that's you."
0: That's it. <laughs> well, okay. Well, well, I know you you you're a very busy man, so um thank you again so much for being on the podcast um you know thank you for your for your service you're in the military and your continued service now um through all the charities and and your in the private sector um i think if there's one thing that i've taken away from this uh, out of you know the the um, immense um sort of s- storytelling that we've had is the the gatekeeper to your emotions i think is the um would be the theme that i'd, I'd have for this and so colin thank you very much
1: Perfect. Thanks for having me.